That song made me think about a time when Jesus' disciples came and talked to him about all that they had left behind and all that they had forfeited and 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 not in a I don't think it was in a in an ungodly sense at all. I think if you read the context and all that Jesus is saying there, they were saying, Lord, what's in it for us? What what will we gain? You know the answer to that question. We gain him. Jesus Christ is the prize. You know, we think of heaven, and, that, and that's great. And even when you think of the, the promise of rewards and, and crowns, but all of that, both heaven and the crowns, point to Christ. He's the prize. He's the prize. He's why, he's why Paul put his life on the line. He's why Paul suffered and said, I still count it joy. Because we're going to gain Christ. He's the prize. We did International Day of Prayer the past two, two Sunday evenings, and one of those, in one of the sessions we had as we were watching, watching the video, the, the question that, that was posed, thinking through the suffering of so many for Christ, and, and, and sometimes, you know, maybe not just specifically in the persecuted church, but even the testimony of the one speaker, just sometimes the loss that came their way in the service of Christ. And the question that was posed was this. Is Jesus worth it? Is he worth it? I know what I want my answer to be. I want my answer to be a resounding Absolutely. So I'll say that this morning, but when the time of loss comes, come and ask me then. Because I hope I'll still say it then. Father, as we open your word, it's a precious word because it comes from you. It's the words of life. We need the life that comes from you. We need the wisdom that comes from above. So open your word to us this morning, we pray. Help us to behold wonderful things in your word. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I would invite you to open your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. I want to read a story that Jesus told one day in, in his uh, day of ministry and of teaching, Acts chapter 18, verse, starting at verse 9, and I'll read down through verse 14. And he, that is Jesus, spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, 
but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. I don't know about you. I'm tired of the blatant hypocrisy in our culture. No group has cornered the market on hypocrisy, by the way. I'm wearied by the relentless judgmentalism. And I'm sad not just by the division it is all creating, but I am saddened by the decreased empathy for others as they are systematically dehumanized. We see it in politics. We see it in the media. We see it in academia. We see it in entertainment. And sadly, we see it in the church. This hypocritical, judgmental, self-congratulations lack of empathy is on full display in this story that Jesus told. And to me, the irony of it all is that it manifests itself in a prayer of thanksgiving. And thus, as uh, Luke gives us the account, he, he gives us at the outset, he's, as he's going to recount this, uh, this story that Jesus told, uh, he tells us, what the, what the point of the story was that Jesus was telling there in verse 9. So Jesus spoke this parable to, and he has, a, he has a target audience in mind, those who trust in themselves that they're righteous. Those who think that they can make themselves good enough to be accepted by God. Those who think that because of who they are and what they've done, Of course God loves them. Those who think that they can work their way into the kingdom on their own righteousness, he's talking to them, those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And here's the flip side of that. When you think you're righteous, then anyone who's not like you is not going to be righteous and thus to be looked down on. Maybe just a little bit of that going on in our day. Jesus has a message to those who trust in themselves, they put confidence in themselves that they are righteous. They are, if you will, they are declaring themselves to be righteous, good, acceptable to God. And they despise others. Boy, I'm glad I'm me and not you. I'd be a pretty miserable person if I was you. It's Thanksgiving season. Boy, I'm glad I have this because then I wouldn't want to be that person who doesn't have it. That's, that, that's the point of his story. And, and also, again, Jesus drives it home in verse 14 after he tells the story. I tell you that, that, that this man went down to his, just, his house justified, not the other man, because or for this reason, everyone who exalts himself, who lifts himself up is going to be brought down, is going to be humbled. And he who humbles himself is the one who's going to be lifted up, who's going to be exalted. That's, his, that's the point of his story. And, and the story he tells, it, 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 it's a parable. 
okay? But just because it's a parable doesn't mean it's not something that he didn't actually observe someday when he went up to the temple. Jesus had a knack when he would go up to the temple, he would watch people, and Jesus would see things that others wouldn't see. And so it's, it's probable that as Jesus tells this story, it's based on, on something he had observed on at least once, maybe more occasions when he had gone up to the temple and he had watched people. And he had seen this happen, and so he puts it into a story to, to, to drive home a point. And so in this story, he talks about two people. He talks about a Pharisee and a publican. Now, the, the Pharisee here, he's not intended to represent every last Pharisee, because not every last Pharisee acted like this one. But, but this Pharisee is going to particularly illustrate his point. And, 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 and a public, not every publican or tax collector acted like this one did. Some of them continued to, to just be in their, their old awful lifestyles, but not this one. And so he talks about a Pharisee and a publican. In that culture, he's talking about the best of the best versus the worst of the worst. Now, in our modern years, you know, because we have grown up, if, if you will, if you've grown up with the Bible, you've come to understand a little bit about the Pharisees. And so in, in our ears, we really don't like Pharisees, okay? And, and so we'll, we will, okay, in that sense, maybe identify more with the publican and not with the Pharisee. But listen, in that day, the Pharisees were esteemed. They were respected in general by the people. Were there some outright, blatant, hypocritical uh, people? Absolutely but not all of them. It was a respected class. They were religious leaders. They, they had a grasp of the word of God, a grasp of the law. They sought to do what they understood to be what was right, to live holy, righteous, and, and, and just lives. They, they tried to live upright lives. And so they were respected individuals, not in our, you know, we don't respect them, but in that time, in that culture, as a whole, they were respected. And on the flip side, you have this tax collector this, this publican, um, this individual did more than go around house to house and, and collect taxes. This is, he, was a, he was a toll collector. So it, it could be collecting a tax. It could be, it could be you know, collecting the fees on the goods that are being transported. You know, so he would, he would sort of be the, 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 the combination, yeah, of a, of a tax collector, of someone who's working the toll booth on, on, on Interstate 80. You've got to stop and you've got to you know, give them some money. Or, or, or the person who's collecting tariffs on goods. He, that's, that's sort of all wrapped up. Uh, he was a Jew who worked for the, the Roman Gentile government. And so that in and of itself put him really at odds with, with his fellow Jews. He worked for the enemy. And, and he did nasty things for the enemy. He, he collected, he took money from his fellow Jews to hand over to this foreign government. And often the way you got these jobs is you could bid on them. And so, if you will, there was a certain amount of revenue that was required to be brought in and so you would guarantee that revenue to the, to the authorities and you'd get the job. And then as long as, you, as long as you provided that revenue to the government, they were fine. You could then collect any, anything above that that you wanted. And so it was an occupation that just lent itself to taking advantage of other people. And this class was known for that. Not only were they collecting for the government, but they were collecting more to themselves. And many of them became wealthy. He was a despised person. You, you, would, you would not want to have been numbered among them unless you loved money that much. 
And so, and so these are the two characters, the one, the one who in that nation in that time is just revered as a, as, a, as a moral, good, religious, decent person, and this scoundrel. And so you can sort of in your mind just figure out in, in your own world, in your own culture, you know, who, who's the person you might tend to despise the most? What kind of person might you tend to despise the most? Who, who, who's the person, the people you say, I'm glad I'm not that. So that's who this tax collector would, would represent. So these are the two characters in the story Jesus told. The plot of the story basically is about these two men who offer two prayers and yield, that yield two outcomes. So we have the, the Pharisee, the publican. We have the prayers. It says they went up to the temple to pray. The temple was there in Jerusalem. It was the, it was the center of Jewish worship. If we could uh, take that setting and bring it into ours, it might be like a Roman Catholic going up to the Vatican. I mean, you're talking the, the center of the Roman Catholic faith is, is St. Peter's there in the Vatican. So for the Jew, the center of, of, of their worship is going up to the temple in Jerusalem. It's where all the, if you will, the rituals of the law were carried out, where the festivals took place, the sacrifices were made, the prayers were offered. It was a busy place of activity. It says they went up to the temple, and no matter where you came from, you always went up to the temple, because the first, you, you would ascend these stairs from, from down below that would then come up into what was called the Gentiles' court, huge, a huge uh, area, the court of the Gentiles. They, they were allowed to go that far and no further. And then you could, uh, you could if you were uh, a, a Jew, you could, ascend, you could ascend eight feet higher to the court of the women. And then if you were a male Jew, you could ascend 10 feet higher to the court of Israel. So you're getting up there pretty high now. The, the, if you will, the closer, the closer you're drawing to the temple, the higher up you're going. If you were a priest, you could ascend, uh, assemble, uh, ascend a platform another three feet higher, and then from there you went eight feet higher up to the floor of the temple. So all along the way, you're coming up to the house of the Lord. You're coming up to the temple. It says they went up they went up to the temple to pray. It says the Pharisee standing. Really, really the, the Pharisee, more literal, he took his stand. He took his stand, probably, as we might judge this character based uh, on how he's described. He probably went as far in and as high up as he could go in the temple. If he wasn't a priest, he had to stop them. He, he went as far in he, as, as he could go. And he got as high up as he could go and took a prominent position. And then, most likely, in the acceptable custom of the day, lifted his eyes to heaven and spread out his hands in prayer. We're told that the publican, in contrast, stood afar off. Stood afar off. Um, he's an outcast, and he seems to know it. Um, he's a Jew, so he can come up to the temple. Don't know how far in he went, but he says he stood afar off, hung out in the shadows, probably feels very uncomfortable there. Don't know how often he would go up to the temple because he knew he wouldn't be welcomed there. And there he is afar off in the shadows, eyes lowered, and we're told his hands beating his breast. He is in, he is in, he's in anguish of soul, sorrow, but more than that, 
you know, if, maybe if we could just trans, translate a picture into, you know, picture a, a, a sports scene, a soccer game, and, and it's the, you know, it, it's a tie and it's a penalty kick shootout. And if this guy kicks it into the goal, they win or, 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 or they'll win. If, if not, it's going to continue on or... If you will, the end of the game, he misses a shot and they lose. And you ever seen the anguish? I mean, their, their hands come over their heads and there's just, there's just anguish of soul. They could have won and they blew it. And so if we can take and translate that a thousand times, here's a guy, here, here, here's this, this outcast sinner who knows he's blown it, who knows he's in trouble before a holy God, and he's, he's come up to the place where you meet God. He's, he's inched his way in. He's not sure how far in he should come. He, he's coming there, and he is just an anguish of soul. Those are the, that's the picture we have of these two men. And, and so in that posture, they offer two prayers. We're told that the, uh, of the prayer of the Pharisee, it says he prayed within himself. I don't think it means that he prayed to himself, Probably all it means is he's, he's praying audibly. It could have been loud, but, but common. It would be common for, for Jews to pray audibly, though not real loud. That there's going to be verbal sounds coming out. You, if you were to stand next to him, you'd hear what they are saying. And, and so this is, if you will, in this prominent place there in the temple, in this high place as far as he could go, with, with eyes lifted, hands outstretched, he's offering this prayer up to God. And it's interesting, it's a, it's a self-congratulating prayer of thanksgiving. And I just point that out to caution us this week. We're going to spend some time giving thanks. And so here's a guy spending some time giving thanks. And what we read about is a self-congratulating prayer of thanksgiving. He's thankful for what he wasn't. I thank you, I'm not like other people. And he goes on, I'm not an extortioner who steals money. I'd be thankful. <laughs> I'd be thankful, especially if I worked with him. Or, or, or if he was handling my, my, uh, my retirement account, I'd be thankful that he wasn't an extortioner. He said, I'm not unjust. That, that's someone who just cheats others. Or, or an adulterer, someone who cheats on their spouse or steals another person's spouse. Lord, thank you, I'm not that. Thank you, I don't go around stealing people's money and cheating them and cheating on my spouse and, and che- you know, stealing another person's spouse. Thank you, I'm not like this, this tax collector, this lowlife. So he's thankful for what he wasn't, but he's also thankful for his own good deeds. He says, listen, I fast, I fast twice. That's much more than what the law required. He says, I I tithe everything. And and the text says he tired, he he tithe of everything he acquired. That means this went way beyond a paycheck. I I mean, this guy was so fastidious in his tithing that when he shopped at Kohl's and got 30% off his his purchase and $20 in Kohl's cash, he tithed off of that. Everything that came his way, every benefit that came his way, he tithed off of that. This guy had more good deeds to his credit, it seemed, than he needed. I mean, if anyone was a shoe in for the kingdom, it's him. Now, before climbing all over this guy, because we don't like Pharisees, What's wrong with being fair? What's wrong with being an honest person? What's wrong with being faithful to your wife? What's wrong with being serious about your your religion, your faith? What's wrong with being a good, decent person? 
here's, here's the thing. There, there, there is an undergirding, underlying attitude in which he's really saying, I'm, I'm so thankful I'm me. If only more people were like me, what a better world this would be. And you may have never said that, but let's be honest. Do we ever think that? This man is satisfied with himself. He believes in himself. However, something, something is terribly missing from his thanksgiving. There is no evidence whatsoever of any humility, which means that what is absent from his thanksgiving is any expression of love for God. There seems to be a, a, a real failure in his love for God. Uh, there, also, what is missing is, is, is compassion. There is no compassion for others, which means he has failed to love his neighbor. And so this super keeper of the law was basically and really a major breaker of the law. But he didn't see it. He's the poster child for all who attribute their well-being to who they are and to what they do. My hard work, my ingenuity, my stick to Self-made person. In contrast, we have the prayer of the publican. It's really just a humble sinner's plea for mercy. And again, here he is in the temple, hanging back in the shadows. Not sure he fits in, but somehow he's drawn there because this is the place you meet God. He's overwhelmed with sorrow. He's overwhelmed with guilt. He's overwhelmed with shame. And his prayer is just this, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And, and the definite article is there, be merciful to me, the sinner. Unlike the self-justifying Pharisee who saw everyone else's sin, but not his own, this tax collector saw his personal sin. And what does he ask for? He asked for mercy. That's what every sinner needs. It's mercy. You see, the prayer itself really shows us the problem and the solution. (laughs) His prayer, God, he's talking to, to God who is holy, who is righteous, who is just, who is perfect in every way. So he addresses God. He talks about the fact that he's a sinner. So we have God, and here's me, the sinner. Whether it's the thief or the cheater, the adulterer, the tax collector, yes, he says, that's me. I'm the sinner. I'm guilty. I deserve God's judgment for being a rebel. I deserve the punishment of hell. Last summer, I was fixing something in the kitchen, and I end up smashing my finger with a hammer. The last of the black and blue is about to be gone. (laughs) Didn't feel very good. I deserve the hammer of God hitting against the anvil of his justice. That's what I deserve. That's what every sinner deserves. And he's, and this, this, this man who in that culture, not, you know, certainly, certainly society and people all around him were aware of how wicked and evil and sinful and vile he was. Certainly his culture, his society despised him. But he himself has come to the place of just being overwhelmed 
by the guilt of it all and that he deserves nothing but God's judgment. His prayer really is asking, is there an escape? Well, there's a rescue. There's a rescue. So how does, how does the sinner get rescued from hell and brought back to God? Here's God who is holy and righteous and just. Here's me, the sinner. How in the world do we bridge that gulf? And it's in that phrase, be merciful to me. Be merciful to me. When he prays for God to be merciful to him, he's not asking God just to be nice to him. He's not asking God just to take compassion on him like you might, that you might, you know, for a sick person who just really needs someone to come alongside and help them or to lift them up or to relieve them or the kind of mercy you might feel for the homeless person along the street. This is, this is more than that. He, he's not just pleading for a reduced sense. You know, you could, have, you could have a convicted killer who pleads for mercy that rather than being executed, maybe he'll get life imprisonment. So when, when he pleads for mercy, he's not just plea, pleading for God to be nice to him or to reduce his sentence. The word here, be merciful to me, refers to the taking away of what separates the sinner from God. When he says, be merciful to me, the sinner, the word for mercy is the word that's used of the mercy seat in the temple over the, over the Ark of the Covenant. Go back in the Old Testament, if you're not familiar with that, in, in, in the tabernacle that was constructed, it was the place of, of worship for Israel as they wandered in the wilderness, as they made their way to the promised land. It was later replaced by the temple. This was the place where, 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 this, where a sinful nation could come and meet with the holy God. And thus it was a place of, of sacrifice. It was a place of bloodshed. It's where, it's where the, the, the goats and the lambs were slain and their blood was shed and they were put on the altar. And in the tabernacle, in the temple, there were two rooms, the holy place and the most holy place. The most holy place is where what is called the Ark of the Covenant was there. Yes, I know it's from Raiders of the Lost Ark, but really it's from the book of Exodus, okay? It's from the book of Exodus. It was a real thing in Israel's history, in Israel's worship. And there in the most holy place was the Ark of the Covenant. And over the Ark of the Covenant was what was called the mercy seat, And over the mercy seat is where the glory of the presence of God would come down and be be seen in in Israel. It was where God would, would manifest, he would make visible his presence among his people. There over that most holy place, over the mercy seat. No one was allowed into that room ever except the high priest and once a year on pain of death. And when he would come into the most, the, into the most holy place. On the day of atonement, he came with blood, the blood of a sacrificial lamb, the lamb that had been slain, sacrificed. He came with the blood. Having been cleansed himself, he would then come into the most holy place. He would sprinkle the blood there on the mercy seat, and he would make what we call atonement for the sins of Israel. Things would be at peace. God would be satisfied. The mercy mercy seat was the place where the sinner met with God. It was the place where the sinner could come to God. Be merciful to me. O Lord God, this sinner is praying, be the mercy seat for me. 
It's a prayer for God to take away his guilt. God, remove the guilt of my sin. David said it this way in Psalm 51, 1 through 3. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. (laughs) There's a real sense in which this little prayer, God be merciful to me a sinner, is, is that prayer of David. The psalmist said in Psalm 103, verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. That's the mercy of God. It is the, it is the removal, the taking away of his guilt. The prophet Micah in Micah 7, 19 says, you of the Lord, you will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. And Isaiah said it this way, Isaiah 38, 17, you have cast all my sins behind your back. That's what this word for mercy is. Take away, take away the guilt. Take away the guilt of my sin. But it's also a prayer for God to satisfy the debt. Because sin brings a penalty. Sin brings a debt. And for guilt to be removed, the penalty must be satisfied. The penalty must be paid. Because the scriptures say the soul that sins shall die and the wages of sin is death. And you don't plea bargain with God on that. His plea for mercy is for God to satisfy the debt of his sin and thus remove the guilt. That's the essence of forgiveness. That's what he's asking for. He was in a place there in the temple where all of this was symbolically done. All of those sacrifices, the killing of all those animals, the shedding of that blood, making atonement, all of it anticipated Jesus Christ. All of it looked forward to Jesus Christ coming and once and for all shedding his blood, giving his life, and paying the price. Hebrews 9.26 says that Jesus appeared to put away sin. How? By the sacrifice of of himself through his sacrifice he took away he removed our guilt declaring the sinner righteous it's a miracle it's a miracle of grace and john writes this in first john 2 2 he is the propitiation that's our word (laughs) that's our word the mercy seat he is the propitiation for our sins the one who satisfies And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus Christ, through his death, through his resurrection, has satisfied the requirement, the penalty for sin by his own death. Jesus is the mercy seat where sinners find a place to meet with God because the sin problem has been dealt with through Jesus Christ. God, be merciful to be a sinner. 
take away this guilt, satisfy this debt. So there's two outcomes to this prayer. So what happened? Well, we're told, Jesus says in verse 14, that this man, this tax collector, he went down to his house justified. He went down to his house having been declared righteous by God. Interesting, he went up to the temple, a guilty sinner. He met God's mercy, and he went down a free and forgiven man. Isn't that beautiful? Doesn't say that of the other guy. He saw no need of God's mercy because he didn't think that he'd done anything wrong, and thus he declared himself to be righteous. This tax collector went down justified. How did that happen? Well, (laughs) he didn't do what the Pharisee did. He humbled himself by pleading for mercy, which is what we find through Jesus Christ. Now, the Pharisee offered a prayer of thanksgiving. This story tells us that this tax collector went down justified. It doesn't tell us if he was thankful or not, but listen to the words of Psalm 40, verses 1 through 3, because I think they describe this tax collector's experience. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me and heard my cry. He also brought me up out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock and established my steps. He has put a new song in my mouth. Praise to our God. Many will see it and fear and will trust in the Lord. One went up thinking he was righteous, came down in his condemnation. One went up knowing he was, con- was condemned, humbled himself before the Lord, came under the mercy of God, and went home a righteous man. Psalm, 1, uh, Psalm 13, verse 6 says, I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. We're mindful of that this week. The bounty of the Lord. But what is the bounty of which the psalmist speaks? I would submit to you it's the bounty of God's mercy. God is sovereign. God is just. But God is merciful. The story, I think, of the Pharisee and the tax collector, it reminds us of where real thanksgiving comes from. It doesn't come really from the bounties of a good life. Rather, it comes from humility before God and the mercy of God. Not that there's no room for thankfulness in the heights, but even then, I would submit to you that real thanksgiving is rooted in the depths what God has rescued us from. I don't know what you're facing or or feeling this morning, but this story reminds us that from the lowest places come the highest praises. The nature of God's mercy is that it reaches down to the depths. In this story, the truest thanksgiving didn't come from the one who had it all together. It didn't come from the lips of the exalted one. Rather, it came from the despised outcast, the one who was as low as he could go. 
from those lowest places come the highest praises to God. See, real thankfulness doesn't, doesn't spring from a table that's loaded down with an abundance of food. It really doesn't spring from a happy family gathering or experiencing the good life. Not that they don't contribute to, to, to some of the joy and happiness of life, but rather, real thanksgiving, I'm just going to say that it goes deeper than that. It goes deeper than that. It, in fact, it, it goes so deep that even if you don't have abundance this Thanksgiving, and even if you're alone this Thanksgiving, And even if life isn't all good physically and spiritually, you can still find and experience real real thanksgiving. Because real thankfulness springs from from grace. Grace is, we, we define it this way, grace is God's kindness to the undeserving. But if you're going to experience grace, you have to realize just how undeserving you are. Which means you have to grasp mercy. It's God's mercy that meets each of us in the lowest place of our lives. And it's from that lowest place, uh, that lowest of all places, that's going to come the highest of all praises. So so if all we receive, listen, if, if, if all you receive in this life is forgiveness of sin that leads to everlasting life, you will have received enough to spend eternity thanking God. That's where our thanksgiving needs to flow from. It's not about how good you think you are. It's not about how bad you think you are. It's about who God is and what he's done for you. So entrust yourself to his mercy. God, we need your mercy. And you have given it to us through Christ. As we look at the cross and we see our Savior, there's mercy. There's mercy to the sinner. Lord, for the one here this morning who just doesn't doesn't feel good enough to be in your presence, doesn't feel acceptable, Lord, the fact of the matter is none of us are. In ourselves, none of us are. Please let that person see your mercy. Let that person see that in Jesus is the place. That's the place you meet with every sinner. There's no other place we can meet you. But that's where we meet you. Because Christ has paid the penalty. He has removed our guilt. He's satisfied the debt. And in Christ, we're declared righteous. We're made free. Lord, there's something in us that wants to keep working for that, something in us that wants to keep proving ourselves. Help us to stop. And once again, this Thanksgiving, to thank you profusely for being a God of mercy, for withholding from us hell, for delivering us from the judgment to come, for rescuing us, for coming down to the lowest place imaginable in mercy and lifting us up. Fill us with praise and thanks because of your mercy. With our heads bowed and eyes closed, we're going to sing as we conclude our time. 
and we're going to respond to the glorious truths of the mercy of God. If you're here and you've never met Christ as your Savior, maybe, you, maybe there's some of these things that hold you back, or maybe, maybe, you, maybe you, you thought you, you're good enough, and listen, apart from Christ, you're not. Maybe you thought you're so far gone, you've done, you've done things that, that no one could ever forgive you. you you've done things that, that God could never overlook. Listen, no, he doesn't overlook. He forgives through Christ. You need to come to him. You need to come to him. If you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, I just want to invite you this morning to do that. Come to the Savior. Come to his mercy. Let him show you and let him give you his mercy. You've got to receive it. As we sing, if we can be of help to you, invite you to slip out, come to the front. Have someone go aside privately with you. They will pray with you. They'll seek to help you understand that you might know Christ as your Savior. What other areas there may be in your life, Christian, that God's working on, let's use this time to respond to him in song and prayer. We're here to be of help. You come. Work in that in our lives to that end. In Christ's name, amen.